Let's bow once more for a word of prayer before we open the word of God together. Gracious Father, in these moments that we have together today to open up your eternal word, Lord, we ask that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would help direct our focus, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, uh, that uh, for the joy set before him endured this cross, despising the shame, so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that truth, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who gives us uh, the spiritual eyes to be able to see your word, to understand it, to embrace it, and to apply it. And Lord, I pray that for each one here this morning, uh, that they would uh, walk away, uh, having been challenged by what your truth uh, says. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And Ken has already read our text, which... By the time I get done next Sunday with the final phrase in verse 1, you should have it memorized. So if uh, any of the uh, Olympians or the, I guess probably more of the Word of Life teens are looking for a verse to quote for their uh, Word of Life uh, discipleship program, you can quote Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle uh, of, of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Where our focus today is going to be on that second to last phrase to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, I don't know whether or not this is a shocking uh, statement here, but Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, Because for some of you, that's going to be a a shock. uh, Because who is Paul actually addressing this to? Uh, And I think there's somewhat of a confusion today uh, in uh, the... the, uh, religious world, uh, and I think that even our culture, as you take and look up the word uh, saint in the dictionary, you hear it defined as a saint is one officially recognized, especially through canonization as preeminent for holiness. Uh, and so as you look at that dictionary definition, you find out that it is something that uh, man officially recognizes. Uh, and it says, you know, as they're preeminent for holiness, set apart for holiness. Well, see, there's a common teaching held uh, within the Catholic Church uh, concerning sainthood. Uh, and we need to be able to uh, differentiate between what that commonly held teaching is and what uh, it puts forth and what Paul is communicating here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. So in order to be a saint or be, uh, you know, declared for sainthood, uh, you have to be dead for at least five years. And as I look out over the congregation, there are some of you that are close to falling asleep, but not necessarily dead uh, to be part of this sainthood as you are considered. Uh, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, I don't think any of us are wanting to be dead at this moment. But part of that is also that they have to live a confirmed life of heroic virtues, which includes prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice, faith, hope, and charity, or died a heroic death, or what we would consider martyrdom. 
Uh, and so we see from that that this heroic virtues are what comes out of the individual, things that they try to, to live for, to be prudent, to be temperate, to have fortitude as they live, to be those who seek justice, who exercise faith, who have a hope, and who are charitable uh, towards others. But also, uh, what is necessary for sainthood uh, is to confirm post-mortem miracles, which, by the way, are completely impossible because those who are physically dead cannot perform miracles. And the final thing is, is that the Pope being the final authority. He is the one who declares someone or says this individual has attained sainthood based off of those things we just you know, mentioned, that they had to be dead for at least five years, that they have confirmed life of heroic virtue, that they have done two post-mortem miracles, and the Pope says this person is a saint. Well, if we take a look at the, at the Word of God, if we look at the Bible itself, we're going to find very quickly that what the Catholic Church puts forth is things that are man-made. Uh, this is a, a man-driven uh, consideration for sainthood because you won't find any of these things scripturally. What you will find very quickly is what Paul puts forth here in this letter to, uh, as it says, those who, uh, saints who are in Ephesus. Well, that phrase, to the saints, uh, is the Greek phrase, uh, tois hagios, uh, which means set apart ones or separated to God. And the thing is, is this is not just some, uh, you know, accidental occurrence. This is not a slip of the tongue by Paul to, you know, qualify, you know, the people that are going to receive this letter as saints when they're not. Matter of fact, uh, as you keep your finger there uh, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, uh, you're going to find out pretty quickly that Paul actually speaks to this uh, uh, saints a whole bunch of times. Look at verse 15, same chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward, what? All the saints. Then look at verse 18, same chapter. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. In other words, salvation. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Verse 19 of chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, you know, Paul referring to himself, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, Verse 18, chapter 3, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Chapter 4, verse 12, you getting the point here that he's trying to bring forth a truth? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then two more, one in chapter 5, verse 3. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And finally, chapter 6, verse 18. Prayed at all times in the Spirit, and with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul is putting forth this phrase to the saints, uh, those set apart, those separated to God, as speaking to every believer in Jesus Christ. He includes himself as one who is the very least of all the saints. So the thing is, is we have a stark contrast here to what uh, is put forth in relation to sainthood, both from the dictionary, uh, but also from the teachings of the, the Roman Catholic Church, is that sainthood comes to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Because think about it, we have been set apart and separated from this sinful world to holiness. See, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We are in the kingdom of light. You know, uh, we don't live for just ourselves. We live to the glory of God. Jesus, uh, even in his high priestly prayer uh, in uh, John chapter 17, uh, speaks to this distinction that we are those who are set apart or separated unto holiness. He says in verse 14 and following, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So stop there for a moment, because Jesus is, is showing this, this definitive, if you want to call it line in the sand, of those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that they are not part of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus says he's given them your word. He's talking about God's eternal word, you know, the, the truth of what we read in the Bible. And he says, the world hates them because of it. So anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and is reading the word of God and making the word of God part of who they are each and every day, guess what? The world's going to hate you. Because you stand for everything that is righteous and just. You stand uh, against everything that is contrary to God's moral code, to God's law, to everything that God stands for, to everything that God is. All the things that we've been studying and as Pastor Caden has been teaching and we're almost finished with the attributes of God. We talk about God's attributes is, is helping us to understand who he is. God is love. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. It's all those things that come together for us to see who he is. And the thing is, the world hates that because the truth reveals the lie. When the truth, which is absolute, because truth is not subjective to the individual, that's what man thinks, and man's wisdom is foolishness to God. The fact is, is that as we live in this world, we're going to find very quickly that we are not going to be loved by the world. Because as we reflect the truth of Jesus Christ, as we reflect a redeemed life, as we reflect those who are no longer slaves to sin, that we actually live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that the world is not going to embrace that. They are not going to love that. They are, if anything, going to persecute that which we've read and found that out in much of the scriptures that we've looked at. But verse 15 says, as it goes on there in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
So here Jesus has us in the world, even though we're not of the world. He doesn't want us to be taken out of it, but he says, but that you keep them from the evil one. So in other words, what Jesus is asking the Father to do is to safeguard that which his blood would pay for on Calvary. To make sure that we don't live like the world because we're no longer like the world because we are set apart. We are separated to God. Verse 16 says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth your word is is truth doesn't say it is a truth it is truth because god's word is absolute it does not answer to mankind it does not answer to man's knowledge his wisdom or his understanding instead it dictates to the world how things are because he is the god of all Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So in other words, we are sent into the world for the purpose of God's eternal truth, his word, as we read it, as we digest it, as we meditate upon it, as we make it part of who we are. So that it reflects Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. That's that sanctification and truth. Sanctification is the process by which God makes us more holy as he is holy. Because his word transforms. That's why the scripture says it's living and active. It has a goal. It has a purpose. And it accomplishes that goal and purpose. When it is applied in particular to unbelievers for salvation, because it is through the scriptures that we are made wise unto salvation, but also it is what guides us and directs us. And as we've been studying in Psalm 119 in the midweek devotional, the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what God's word does. And that's why we're still in the world, because there are those who need the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, Peter speaks to it in a little different way and actually helps us see that we are truly set apart because he uses language that, but you. So every believer here in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, what? Out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see the separation? Yes, we're in the world, we're not of it, because we are no longer in darkness, we are in light. In other words, we're not blinded by the lie, we see and understand the truth. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, so there was a time when we weren't God's people, but now you are God's people, because of what Jesus Christ did. Once... You had not received mercy because you were under the wrath of God, because you were in rebellion before God, because you did what you wanted to do. You fed the desires of the sinful flesh, but now you have received mercy, not getting what you deserve because that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He took that so that you would be set apart and separated from the world. So that as Paul has declared here in Ephesians, in I didn't even count, eight verses throughout those six chapters, 
that you are saints because of who Jesus Christ is in you. Not because of something that you yourself have done. I don't declare myself a saint, and I have no part in making myself a saint. That's God's work and God's declaration. But there does need to be a distinction between a saint and being saintly. Okay? Saints are those who uh, are, or we are saints solely in what Christ has accomplished in us for salvation. So you are a saint because of Christ in you. Because of the spirit that is in you for, uh, as a seal until the day of redemption. It's God's work. He is the one who uh, declares you a saint as a joint heir in Jesus Christ, as the scriptures tell us. But being saintly refers to the believer's daily moral behavior, which we're going to talk about next week. And the verse, as you see, verse 1 finishes out, and are faithful in who? Not me, not your parents, not your own skills or abilities. You're faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice the channel through which that faithfulness comes. It comes through Jesus Christ, the one who saved you, who redeemed you out of darkness and brought you into light. We are sinners saved by grace, set apart as saints, and sanctified in God's truth. And that's exactly what Paul is putting forth here, is that we are still sinners saved by grace. That we are receiving the mercy of God that we once did not receive because God's wrath was upon us. And as a result of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary, the fact that he was um, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, giving testimony to the fact that we, through faith and trust in him and him alone, are seen as saints in Christ Jesus. And what God continues to do is that our salvation is not just so that we can go live however we want. Our salvation has an end goal. It has a purpose, and that is our sanctification, which is different than justification. Justification is that work by which God declares us righteous before God. And that's how I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that God's got me. And that I've been paid for in full. That I'm experiencing not only the mercy of God, but also the grace of God. That I cannot save myself and apart from Jesus Christ, I am hopeless and in darkness, not under the mercy of God, doing what the sinful flesh desires to do. But with Jesus Christ, there's a stark contrast. Because you see the truth. You know the truth. You know that there is one true God. That you know Jesus Christ is the Redeemer and the Savior. And so Paul is saying that everyone, which would include as we, we look at ourselves today, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then guess what? You're a saint. The Pope doesn't need to tell you that. You don't have to wait until five years after you're dead. You don't have to do post-moral miracles, which I said is impossible anyway. Because your physical body is dead. And the thing is, it's not based in your virtue. It is based in Christ's righteousness that you're called a saint. Well, Paul goes on because he doesn't finish there. Uh, There's another phrase. He clarifies. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. 
Now, in Ephesus does not appear in many of the earlier manuscripts. Now, it's included probably in most, if not all of your Bibles. There may be a footnote there declaring that some of the uh, earlier manuscripts don't say in Ephesus. Uh, And uh, due to the lack of any individual person being named in the book of Ephesians or any particular situation, many scholars actually believe that this letter of, of, you know, Ephesians was written to be circulated. That if you want to call it, you know, I hate to use the word generic, uh, but it it was a, a base letter that would be sent out for the purpose of impacting more than just one particular church or one particular area. Uh, and they would have been circulated in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so this letter had a, a purpose of going forth and going out. Uh, and as you think about Ephesus itself, um, there's some significance, even if the letter isn't actually to the church in Ephesus directly. But there is a, a, you know, a good reason to believe that as we take a look at the importance of Ephesus and where it was, that it was a good hub by which that message could go forth. Uh, you could, we're not going to take the time to read in Acts 19, but if you want to read a, a Paul's interaction as he was in Ephesus, you can do so. Uh, but as we look at the, at, at the city of Ephesus, um, it was the capital of the Roman province in Asia. Uh, and it was on a long and fertile river valley. So as you can imagine, it was a, a, a hub of, of being able to grow and to, to, to populate, you know, much, you know, from the earth. Uh, and so, which, you know, in turn, because of it being such a fertile river valley, uh, they were at the uh, uh, a place where significant uh, trade would actually happen. Because, you know, as they grew things, they would, you know, sell them for the purpose of, you know, gaining a living. And so it was a hub for trade. So you've got people coming and going, people who live there in the valley using their wares to be able to sell. So people would come around, come into, and, and you know, be there and then go back out again. Uh, and so as you can see, you know, if a letter was even sent for the purpose of it going forth and going out, what better place than a hub where... You know, that kind of interaction, that kind of, you know, um, uh, trading and and commerce happening would be a a good place to start. But also, as you look at Ephesus, um, it it actually had a great amphitheater there uh, where it seated uh, upwards of 25,000 people. So this wasn't, like I said, some small town. This was a hub, uh, even where they gathered together for particular things in the amphitheater. Uh, but they were also very religious as well, uh, you know, worshiping God's little g, not the one true God, because the temple of Artemis uh, or Diana is there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so what better place for the truth, the absolute truth of God's word to go forth through a letter that Paul penned under the inspiration of the Spirit to speak to those things which you know, detracted and pulled people's attention away from the one true God. So it makes sense that the letter would have started out in Ephesus, making its rounds, if that in case is uh, uh, the case itself. Uh, But whatever the, uh, you know, as we look at this, um, if it is, you know, a letter that was meant to go out, and as we take a look at the word of God, uh, we know that it's eternal, we know that it's applicable. And so as we sit here in 2021 on February the 21st, I can say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ellington Baptist Church. 
because the words that are enclosed in, F, in the letter uh, of Ephesians are applicable for us today because God's word is applicable. But it also made me think as I thought about the uh, saints who are in Ephesus that uh, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that John, you know, wrote to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, you know, the Apostle John, uh, while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, um, ended up, uh, you know, penning the, the book of Revelation. Uh, and it would have been on an island that was just off of the coast of modern-day Turkey. And notice what the names of the churches are. First and foremost, Ephesus. Then you've got Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as you take a look at these letters that John even wrote, and thinking about the fact that if Paul wrote this for the purpose of it going forth and having a grander impact beyond just the Ephesians or the church at Ephesus, that even the things that John speaks to are pertinent as well. And as you look at those churches, um, all but Sardis and Laodicea had some sort of commendation uh, as a church, something that, that John commended them for, something that they did. But uh, all but Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia had some sort of rebuke, things that they weren't doing right, things that they needed to change. Uh, all had some solution that rightly complemented the commendations or the rebukes. So if they were doing well, to keep on doing, to keep fighting the fight. And if they weren't doing well, this is what you need to change. And so as we think about what was identified in these these churches, as John was perceiving these the same you know route that if this letter was going out in Asia Minor as a uh, a letter, you know the book of Ephesians, that it would have hit no doubt these churches as well. But there was in those letters uh, to, that John wrote a love for Christ, a love for one another, enduring under opposition, dealing with sin and heresy in the church, in other words, repenting of sin, and dead works. And if you take a look at the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to take the time to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You, you're more than welcome to do that this afternoon. But so you can see that as we look at the, the church at Ephesus there that John wrote, he commended them for doctrinal vigilance and endurance. So in other words, they put a supremacy on making sure that their doctrine was right, that they preached the truth, that they lived the truth, that the truth was part of everything they did, that God sanctified them in that truth. Uh, but also that they endured under opposition, under persecution. And so when you look at that, those commendations are actually good things. You know, for churches, you know, for someone to say that, you know, Ellington Baptist Church is a church that has doctrinal vigilance, that we, we stand on the, the supremacy of the word of God, and that even though the world around us may hate us, that we've endured and we haven't, you know, given up, that we remain faithful to the call. But the rebuke for the church at Ephesus was one of a loss of their first love. And the solution being to remember who they are in Christ, to repent of, you know, leaving their first love, and to do the works that were done at first. And to see, the thing is, is that we take a look at those seven churches that we consider the, the book of Ephesians that we're going to be walking through uh, to, to take and glean everything that God has for us as a church in there. 
uh, because this was written to the saints who were in Ephesus, and we are the saints who are uh, at Ellington Baptist Church, uh, that if we're not careful, and I think as, as a call to us as a church today, is to realize that it is very easy to get caught up in the busyness of ministry. It is very easy to get caught up in church work. It's very easy to get caught up in volunteering or attending church or whatever uh, we have decided that is part of our Christian experience. But the thing is, you have to remember that John was speaking to a group of believers. Paul is speaking to a group of believers because he calls them saints, those who have been set apart, who have been separated unto God, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that it's possible for a church to be commended for their doctrinal vigilance and their endurance, but yet at the same time rebuked because they had lost their first love. So that means that we can do Christianity in and of our own power. We can, you know, have a form of godliness, but de- deny the power of it. And so the call here is we're thinking about this and, and trying to, to see what does this mean for us today? What does it mean for the saints at Ellington Baptist Church? And what I'm not saying, so that I have everyone's attention, everyone in the room, everyone online, is I'm not saying that we've lost our first love. But I think the caution is real there that we don't just keep busy, that we don't just keep doing church work, and we don't just keep volunteering and coming to church thinking that is the end all, be all of our Christian experience, because it's not. We can be super busy and having no impact. All we're doing is keeping ourselves busy. You know, and to think about Ellington Baptist Church, we can say, well, you know what? We have two services on Sunday morning, one at 8.30 and one at 11. We have Sunday school in between that goes from 9.45 to 10.30. We have prayer meeting at 5 o'clock on uh, Sunday evenings. We have World Life Teens from 6 to 8 on Sunday nights. On Monday nights, on uh, you know uh, any given uh, second or fourth Monday of the month, we have a men's Bible study going through the book of Judges. On um, Wednesday morning, uh, we have a ladies' Bible study. On Wednesday night, we have a ladies' Bible study. On Thursday night, we have a college and career group that meets and is going through the discipleship program. On Friday night, we have the Word of Life Olympian program that is happening. And on Saturday and Tuesday and, and any given night of the week, there's meetings that are happening with committees and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you get my point? That's a lot of busyness. But if we've lost our first love, then all we're doing is keeping busy. And I'm not saying that's the case, but I think it needs to be a caution because it can happen even to saints in Christ Jesus because we make it about ourselves and not about God. And the thing is that that was even brought out this morning in the adult Sunday school, which if you're not coming to adult Sunday school and you're an adult, which would be from senior high on up to whatever age till God calls you home, you should be here. Because we've been learning about the attributes of God and, and Pastor Canaan's on the very last attribute, which in, in, uh, interestingly enough is not the least significant of God's attributes. If anything, it's the culmination of everything that God is. And that's the glory of God. And that's why we exist, to glorify God and to joy him forever. To not be living for ourselves, not just being kept busy with ministry at the, the expense 
of losing our first love. So in other words, having a passion for God, a love for God, that I want to be here because I'm ready to worship the, the one true and living God. And all the other things that come with it, all of the other things that we do, they always have to be about God and not about ourselves. It's not about what you get out. It's about what you are going to give, first and foremost, to God. But then also, as you're living that out before your, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to be an encouragement to them. And in turn, what God does is he blesses that and then ministers to you. See, the Ephesians were outwardly active. Does that sound like anybody uh, that's familiar? Do you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount? Who was actively or who was outwardly active and looked good on the outside? The Pharisees did, right? And what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You know, they, they were like empty sepulchers. You know, their, their, their insides were like dead men's bones because they were doing it in and of themselves. They were doing it their way. Uh, and they weren't even experiencing the power of God because they didn't even know Jesus Christ. And that's a caution for us that we truly know who Jesus is. And we're not just outwardly active, but we are internally engaging and worshiping the one true God. With all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Let me close with what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, verses 18 through 21, because we're going to get to this text eventually, but it fits in beautifully here for you to get the impact of what Paul is communicating in relation to the saints who are at Ephesus. And I think, you know, even in concurrence with John, who wrote to the church at Ephesus, or even to all those churches in Asia, which, like I said, there's multiple things that you can take a look at that were, were drawn out or identified for each of those churches. But Paul says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That is a declaration as well as a call. Because the fact is, is if we've lost our passion and our love for the Lord, then we are just operating in our own strengths and abilities which we do have. But we're missing out on the blessing of realizing that it's all about God and not about us. That we are coming together to worship so that we can have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to be able to engage the, the God of all. To have a passion for not only communion with him, but a passion for the lost, the ones who need to know of saving grace in, in Jesus Christ. To know the hope to which you've been called that you're no longer part of the kingdom of darkness, but you are part of the kingdom of light. That you're no longer a slave to sin, that you are a slave to righteousness, which is not a bad thing. As you think, you know, we think about slaves and slavery uh, in, in, a, in a, uh, a bad context. 
Because when we think about being a slave or, or a servant to, to righteousness, it means that we have finally understood and seen for the very first time why we were created. Because man is not autonomous. Man does not, you know, you know uh, determine his own destiny. Because in him, in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, we move and have our being. God is the one who sustains all life. He is the one who gives us our identity. He gives us our purpose. He tells us who we are and why we were created. That we are not a mistake. That we did not, you know, crawl out of some evolutionary, you know, primordial ooze. No, we were knitted in our mother's womb by the God who does nothing imperfect. Now, sin has marred what God has done. It has never marred God. And we see that clearly in Jesus Christ, his sinless son, who came and lived and did not sin and thought word or deed. But that's the hope to which you've been called. Do you remember that? Because for some of us, we've been believers for a long time. 45 years, almost 46 for me. We cannot lose our passion and our love for Christ What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So that's among us. The riches of his glorious inheritance. We are a blessed people. So why not bless back to the God to whom all glory is due? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's the call. That's the reminder to the saints who are at Ephesus or in Asia Minor, to whoever read this letter, which includes us today. Don't forget that. Don't live a uh, defeated Christian life. We should be walking around as those that are full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit, ready to share with the world the hope that is in Jesus Christ and all for God's glory. Let's bow for a closing word of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, I do thank you for this text this morning. I thank you for the clarity of your truth, that even though the world may be blinded by the lies of uh, our enemy, that you have opened our eyes to our need of a Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us that gift of eternal life through faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And not so that we should walk around as those who are, you know, under a heavy weight because we are no longer slaves to sin. And yes, we can look at the world in which we live in and and have a righteous indignation when your truth and your morals and your law are broken but that shouldn't help we shouldn't be walking around as those that are defeated because we have overcome we are overcomers because of your son Jesus Christ not even death itself could hold him may we not forget that may you give us the ability to glorify you as we should That when we gather together for whatever purpose, whether it be for cleaning the church, to helping out with a youth group, 
to preparing for worship team, uh, for any of the committees, for Sunday morning worship, for Sunday school, for prayer meeting, for Bible study, whatever it is, may it always, always be about you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.